I'm Larry Bishop, and you're listening to the World is Wrong podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Paul Williams, the director, not the songwriter or the rock critic or the architect. The other Paul Williams. In this, our fourth season of the World is Wrong podcast, we're doing something a little different. I'm your host, Andras Jones, and Paul, Paul Williams, that is, has graciously agreed to join us to share excerpts and outtakes from his memoir, Harvard, Hollywood, Hitmen, and Holy Men, currently available as part of the Screen Classics Collection from the University Press of Kentucky. Williams is the director of The November Men, which World is Wrong listeners will already be familiar with, as well as films like Out of It from 1969 and The Revolutionary from 1970, both starring a young John Voight. Williams, with his Pressman Williams production partner, Edward Pressman, was a producer of films like Brian De Palma's Sisters and The Phantom of the Paradise, as well as Terrence Malick's Badlands. Beyond the movies, Paul rode many of the movements of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, both political and cultural, with characters as varied as Jack Nicholson, Angie Dickinson, Abby Hoffman, and most of the important directors associated with New Hollywood. If you're interested in the story of New Hollywood, Paul's memoir fills in some major gaps. And if you're too lazy and or cheap to get the book and read it, well, this podcast will give you a taste of what you're missing. In today's episode of the podcast, Paul reads a selection about his first feature-length film, Out of It, from 1969. 1967. In June, Liz books a first-class cabin and I, to keep up appearances for her family, book a room of my own in steerage on the Queen Mary. I never see my cabin. During the five-day ocean crossing from Southampton to New York, I write a screenplay treatment, The Man Who Killed Men. The leading man lives on Park Avenue, that every time he looks out a window, he finds himself in the midst of a war. In Vietnam, in World War II, in the Old West, in the Crusades, it makes it difficult for the characters to live the high society life of Manhattan. Personal feelings can make passionate art. <laughs> I'm on the Queen Mary, not the Titanic. The night before the duty call to the selective service, I read Dalton Trumbo's novel, Johnny Got His Gun. Johnny has had his four limbs and face blown off in the war, but still has his mind and communicates by wrinkling his forehead in Morse code. After the four-hour physical, we 300 inductees are in our underpants in a single line with backs against the cold tiled wall, remarkably similar to the tiles in the hallway of PS 108 that I remember passing on the way to my elementary school suspension. An officer says, anyone who wants to see a shrink take Three steps forward. A short, morbidly obese young man shuffles out. A tall, anorexic black man with a ponytail that reaches his ankles. And I also step forward. The officer says, Stand at the door behind me. You will be admitted one at a time. I am the last soldier boy in the line of three at the psychiatrist's store. 
We wait, watched by the 297 draftees that duty is calling. Twenty-five minutes later, across the desk of the German-accented doctor, I am careful to speak disjointedly and slowly. I do not want to give him any extra information or time to delve deeply. I continuously stutter and stammer, as Horst Bullcoats did, and add a repetitious, spastic flinch throughout the interrogation. It takes me a full minute to utter even a short sentence. But I make sure to say that when I imagine myself in the army, the pictures in my brain break apart, a sure sign of potential psychosis, and that I dread the doorless toilet stalls. Ashamed child? Soon enough, I am in front of an overweight sergeant at a small desk. There are two doors open behind him. Through one, I see several of my Massapequa High School classmates lined up to take the oath to serve in the bloodiest years of the Vietnam War. And through the second door, I see a bright, open exit to Brooklyn. The sergeant says, You son of a bitch. He raises his arm and stamps my psychological 2S deferment card. War does not determine who is right, only who is left. I step outside, no more school, no need to work, ready to make movies. I stand in sunlight. David Picker runs United Artists. He is the smartest executive in the business, and everyone knows it. Ed arranges for me to meet him. I wait outside David Picker's office in the cramped anteroom. He has three secretaries who line up and prioritize the continuously incoming calls. I hear the secretary say, No, Mr. Picker will not pick up unless you have your party on the line. The door opens, and I walk toward the desk. Before I can reach the chair to sit down in front of him, the large fit man in his mid-thirties says, I like the treatment. We'll buy it. I say, I want to direct it. He says, how old are you? I say, 23. He says, don't be silly. This is a big budget story. I say, you can have it for free if I direct it. He says, come back in a week. Talk to people. We want to buy the man who killed men. I entered the office a week later. David has Chris Mankiewicz, the United Artists House Intellectual and Head of Development, next to him at one end of the desk. I sit in the only empty chair. Mankiewicz says, it's a very good treatment. I say, you can have it for free if I can direct it. Picker says, are you serious? I say, yes. He says, you won't just sell us a story. I say, no. If I sell it to him, what will Ed do? He's my producer. Picker says, well, then go home and write a low-budget movie, and then maybe we can do it. I'm an old hand at going upstairs to write again. I say, okay, and leave. My goal is to direct, and I'm in a suicidal hurry. Why? I don't have any reason except that it passes muster as a career, and I find writing is no fun. I rent a studio apartment on 55th Street and start the process of writing a low-budget screenplay, one index card at a time. I base out of it on my high school experiences, football, Llewellyn, prom, a drama about transcending the belief in the norms of suburban high school. I survive on winnings from a weekly poker night with Ed's brother-in-law and his colleagues in the rag trade. Seven months later, I am again in front of David and Chris Mankiewicz. David says, we'd like to buy the screenplay. Mankiewicz says, it's fresh, nothing like it. It's a nice movie. Herman Mankiewicz, Chris's uncle, wrote the screenplay of Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. I say, thank you. I want to direct it. David says, you're still too young. We'll buy it. I say, only if I direct. David says, you're too young. I can never get it past our board of directors. I say, I'm going to direct it. 
I walked out of United Artists. 1967. Ed says he will go and try to sell it to the other major studios, or if that fails, he will get independent money. I say, how long will it take? He says it could take a year. I play poker once a week to make ends meet. Another person named Paul Williams founds the first national U.S. rock magazine, Crawdaddy, a year before Rolling Stone. Ironic. In the meantime, I'm not bluffing. 1967. I applied to NYU to be in their inaugural graduate class in film. I am one of the two admitted. The other is Martin Scorsese, who has just made a short film, It's Not Just You, Murray. What a coincidence. My father's name is Murray. Marty implores me to enroll with him and extols the virtues of Haig Mnugian, who will teach us. We start to hang out. His knowledge of movies is encyclopedic. He seems to know nothing about the acting process, but knows from old movies every performance of every emotional quality that he might need to request of his players. He says, do it like Lauren Bacall in the doorway when she turns back to Bogart and to have and have not. She said, you know how to whistle, don't you? You just put your lips together and blow. He is a dark young man and a very friendly, very short, very fast talker. All his focus is on movies, a unique, monumental monomaniac. Soon, Ed announces he cannot get any studio to do out of it, but he says he will get his mother to put up some money for a low-budget production. His mother is a capitalist. She runs the toy company. We will make the movie. I tell Marty I will not go study. Unlike him, I don't know much about American movies. I don't like violence. I don't like lowest common denominator aesthetics. The Scandinavians make hot movies like I Am Curious Yellow and censor violent ones. America censors humane, carnal love. Huh. I know a lot about photography and something about human behavior. Not that much about drama. Quiet hubris will have to suffice. John Avildsen operates the movie camera. A decade later, he directs Rocky and later The Karate Kid. The first day of shooting, John says to the production manager, Albin, there's no goddamn eyepiece. See my eye? John must press his eye firmly onto the metal reflex camera eyepiece to prevent light from leaking in. His eye is red raw. I say, Alvin, get it. For three days, John fumes and his eye is crimson. Finally, obese Alvin brings a spongy oval designed to slip around the eyepiece of the Aeroflex camera. John says, there's no goddamn chalk. We need chalk to make marks for the actors to hit their spots. Alvin says, I'll get you chalk. We all eat cheese sandwiches for lunch and work 12 hours a day. The next week, Alvin delivers a box of chalk. As top man below the line, John complains, no more cheese sandwiches for the crew. After two days, hamburgers appear at lunchtime. After two weeks, John says, Alvin, no more hamburgers. The third week, hot pizzas arrive on the set. Avilson soon says, no more goddamn pizzas, Alvin. By the end of the fifth week, we eat steak sandwiches. The crew is joyous. I ask producer Ed why he has not fired our production manager, Alvin, for doing such a poor job. Ed says, Alvin says, I give them cheap stuff to complain about. Eyepiece, chalk, hamburgers. Imagine if they wanted more film stock or better lenses. This is a low-budget shoot. I play the cards that are dealt. I know how to suffer. Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. 
You can also write to us at contact at the world is wrong podcast.com or follow us on Instagram at the world is wrong podcast. And now back to the show. Oh, Paul, I am so excited to talk with you about this film. Out of it is uh, is something special, and I feel like it's also part of a current conversation. But before we get into that, let's just talk about the greatness of Barry Gordon. I think this is his only lead in any film. Is that? I, I think that's correct. Uh, how did you come to cast Barry Gordon in this movie? I love him, by the way, in this and in Thousand Clowns, two of my favorite, two of my favorite performances as of this moment. Well, the way you put that, it's very difficult for me to answer. I mean, I, Ed Pressman wanted a name. We had a low budget, and uh, Barry Gordon had been in a Thousand Clowns, and. Uh, Ed wanted him to do the role because he was cheap and we could get him. I like Barry very much as a person, and I thought he was a very good actor. But I thought he was entirely wrong for the part. I mean, I had in mind a much tougher, uh, you know, uh, frankly better looking, bigger guy for the role. <laughs> but Ed was quite insistent that we have a name. And I thought Barry certainly could, could handle the acting. Uh, but it turned it into a completely different story. Uh, you know, it becomes a story about a, a guy who's diminutive and picked on uh, by the big guys. And my story wasn't that he wasn't su such a schleb, okay? I had in mind a kind of a stronger character. In fact, I met John Voight. Uh, just the day after we signed Barry uh, Gordon. And Voight was very much what I had in mind for the character. And I, you know, tried to get Ed to switch. And Ed was adamant. He said, we spent $5,000 on Barry Gordon. We're not going to spend money on another guy. And, uh, I mean, it's the opposite of Francis getting Brando and Pacino and everybody in his movies. You know, I got, I didn't, I, I didn't get the cast that I wanted. And, uh, and so I said to John, by the way, because when I met him, I thought he was a great, great talent. I said, look, uh, when Ed wouldn't switch, I said to John, look, do one of the small roles in this movie, and then I'm going to write a movie for you. I think you're great. And uh, he agreed. And that's one reason I think he did do the revolutionary after Midnight Cowboy when everybody in the world wanted him because, you know, I believed in him before that. Okay, that's a real story. I don't mean to cast aspersions, you know. Not at all. that's the true story. Not at all. No, this is, it's funny because this hooks into one of the things that I can't help but think about when I'm watching the film, and it is something you talk about in the book, is about how out of it was filmed before The Graduate, but came out after The Graduate, and in some, in many ways that sort of stole some of the fire from out of it, that out of it would have had if it came out first. Um, well, not only that, but, but also American Graffiti. I mean, American Graffiti came out, you know, uh, 
I still remember I was with Francis Coppola at, in Mill Valley uh, in the cutting room over his garage, and George Lucas was there, you know, on the, on on a uh, Steinbeck, you know, uh, cutting uh, graffiti. And my film had been held up by United Artists. Uh, they wouldn't release it because it was in black and white with no stars. They said if John Voight became a star in Midnight Cowboy, then they'd release it with a star. I told them, of course, that the movie, you know, would be old hat in three years. I was the first movie making being made about American high school suburban life. And we really had a, a winner there. But David Picker didn't go for it. Instead of being a prophet, I would be, I saw I'd be a martyr. But anyway, I still remember being over the garage at Francis's with George Lucas, and they were showing me graffiti. They showed me the scene where, you know, the cops, uh, you know, are trying to, are in hiding, waiting to pick up the guys speeding past in the, the Chevy or whatever, and they take off after the guy, and they've put chains around the axle, so when the cops take off, they lose their back wheels. That was the scene they showed me that morning. And Francis said, how do you like it? I said, oh, it's it's going to it's gonna make a, you know, it's really commercial, too commercial for me. But, you know, this will be the first movie that deals with this scene. Well, what I find interesting is that, you know, the whole story about The Graduate is that they wanted Robert Redford and Mike Nichols fought to cast against type to cast Dustin Hoffman. And it sounds like your conception of the lead character and out of it was John Voight, who is kind of what the author's intention of the character in The Graduate is. And it, and I, I hear you saying that, but for me, what's so potent about the film is that it, the character is so Jewish. So He's so obviously Jewish, which John Voight isn't. And the bullying and his experience as a Jewish kid really speaks to me. But then I'm also a short guy and you're a tall, you know, athlete. And so I can see how your experience of high school wouldn't have been Barry Gordon's. It would have been, you know, you were more of a, uh, my, a type my, I, A. I, I'm more, I, I, I'm the continuum. I'm closer to Paul Newman than Barry Gordon. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, uh, one of the things that I'm very excited to talk with you about about this film is having seen The Fablemans, and we talked last week about how you had dealings with Spielberg early in his career, and here in the twilight of his career, I don't know if it's the twilight, but as, I guess, as he takes on his most personal film with The Fablemans, I can't help but see a lot of similarities and resonances between The Fablemans and Out of It. And I asked you to watch The Fablemans. Uh, a mere 65 years later. <laughs> yeah. Well, I asked you to watch The Fablemans, and I'd love for you to talk about The Fablemans in the context of Out of It. Uh, well, you, we really are talking about, you know, a difference. In, I mean, this is 2023, and that movie was in the late 60s. So that's six, That's over half a century ago. <laughs> uh, and of course, the difference is that Stevens making his movie, you know, with, with nostalgia and understanding, deep understanding of what was, that he couldn't really qu probably quite process as a kid. 
and he's working it out and he's doing it now and and praise praise for him for doing it uh i was doing the same thing but right in the midst of it i wasn't doing it nostalgically i was doing it while i was inside of it which is how i tended to do all my movies I mean, I made my movies about high school when I wasn't far from high school or about revolution when I was still getting beat up in Chicago or, you know, planning a kamikaze attack with the Black Panthers on Manhattan or, you know, I can go on and on. But anyway, out of it was what, you know, it was my report from the front lines, not from 65 years later. Uh, but yes, I mean, I think I had figured it out a little sooner than he had. But of course, The Fablemans have, is really two movies. It's a story of his high school and his movie making. And it's also the story of the, a very complicated nuclear family issue with uh, an affair and a mother. And, you know, it, it really is a major uh, effort. It's a two and a half hour movie. Out of it's an hour and a half and it's pretty much centered at high school. So yeah, the high school section of Out of It is, is has a lot of similarities to his high school section in The Fablemans. Although frankly, I think mine's are, are a, a bit better observed and acted uh, and more interesting. But you know, uh, I had the immediacy of the events to help me when I was directing because all the things that happened in the movie actually happened to me. So. I was able to give it a lot of uh, truth. I, I'm just thinking, I'm trying to think of other films that I can't think of any, I, I'm, maybe they're, I'm sure they exist, but I'm trying to think of other films that get at the particular, very specific themes that both Out of It and The Fablemans do. You have this guy with his camera, this little guy with his little Jewish guy with his camera, at the beginning of Out of It, he's sort of pining for the blonde, you know, the, the blonde couple running, frolicking on the beach, like stealing shots of them with his camera. Wow. And the like the combination of the, the Jewishness, the bullying, the, 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 the weird fetishization of the image through the camera the wish fulfillment thing that's going on with both the Barry Gordon character and the Sammy Fableman character in Fableman's it's 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 really it it's kind of mind blowing to me so let's let's go into this film a little bit more there's an actor in who's in it who I don't think was in anything else but I find him really compelling it's Barry Gordon's friend, played by Peter Grad. Yeah, I don't see him as having any other credits, which I'm, which is surprising because he seems really familiar to me. Maybe it's just because I've seen this movie so many times. Can you talk a little bit about him? Well, I think he became a film executive. Uh, yeah, he's a very smart guy. I think he had a, a career, but not in the movies. Got it. Uh, yeah, he's. I. He's. He really did. How did you? Are these people you all cast out of New York or L.A.? Yeah. All New York actors. Oh, they, they well, the the casting. There was a guy named Marty Davidson. I don't know if he's still alive, but he had a bunch of really wonderful actors in New York, uh, and uh, there were there were great actors running around New York. What can I say? And a lot of them were coming out of Sandy Meisner's Neighborhood Playhouse, and 
anyway, there were plenty of good actors running around New York. Well, let's talk a little bit about Gretchen Corbett because she, sort of like Barry Gordon, this is one of her main film roles that she's had. Oh, she went on. She she had a real a real career in TV after this. She was a recurring actor on the Rockford Files. Yeah, exactly. And I remember her as being very compelling. So having her show up, it's one of the things that I think is great about Out of It is that we do have these larger cinematic performances from some actors who really got relegated, mostly got relegated to TV after that. Well, you got to keep in mind this, that there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of luck and circumstance involved with who gets where. I mean, Gretchen Corbett was a wonderful actress. And, you know, James Garner, uh, in his day, was regarded like Brando is today, you know. Uh, in his day, he was regarded as one of the best actors in Hollywood. So to be on his show is a real feather in your hat. It wasn't just, he wasn't just another TV actor. He was Marlon Brando of, of, of TV. I don't know if you knew that. Well, you don't have to, no, you don't have to tell me. I, I, uh, I grew up, I, I have a particular fondness for, uh, for James Garner because he looks like my father. <laughs> and so I always just liked him when I was a kid. But then as an adult, going back and looking at his film, his film work from the 60s and 70s, is yeah, I, I'm right with you there. He's 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 ripe for yes. the rediscovering, as a cinematic actor. Right, right, and and you know, and he picked up on Gretchen. Gretchen was a very sensitive, you know, she reminded me a little of Sandy Dennis actually. Mm -hmm. uh, very very sensitive instrument. Yeah. So continuing along, one of the things that I find really exciting about this film is the soundtrack. So many of the films that deal with this era, like think of uh, American Graffiti, the needle drops are all songs you've heard before. They're very obvious. I don't know any of these songs, but I love how obscure the soundtrack is. Can you talk about how you pulled that together? I got a guy to do the music who I thought was a bit of a genius. Uh, he had never done a mu music score for a movie before, but he... He was. A, he went to. Uh, he went to Williams College and very bright guy named Michael Small, and Michael and I got along great. And uh, you know, he went on to have a very big career in the movie business as a composer. You know, he did work for Sidney Pollack and Rafelson and every. I mean, we can look him up. He's did about sixty movies. Yeah, Clute, Marathon he died Man, very early in life. Yeah, lots of great films. Right. I mean, he went on to have a great, great career. But when I met him, he had not yet done a score. And he, of course, he did a wonderful job. He had a real feeling. Oh, there's a good story for you. One of Michael's best friend was Charles, uh, the guy who wrote The Graduate. Charles Webb. Charles Webb was a good friend of Michael Smalls. And so, by the way, they gave me The Graduate to read, you know, uh, when we were still working on uh, preparing out of it. And I loved The Graduate, the book, very much. And when I went out to California uh, with Ed to go look for money to raise uh, you know, for out of it, I stopped by Lynn Stallmaster's office. He was the biggest talent, uh, what would you call it, casting agent in California at the time. Yeah. 
Anyway, I went in and I went in to see him to say, hey, I'm, I should play Ben Braddock. I know this guy. I'm directing. My real interest in life is directing, but I could play this guy perfectly. You really should hire me. And uh, he said, well, actually, we've, we've hired a guy named uh, Dustin Hoffman from New York City. I said, oh, yeah, I have heard, you know, Dustin's a friend of John's, Voight's, and, uh, you know, he's a good actor. I said, uh, and he said, well, we'd like to do some other work other than that. I said, nope, Ben Braddock or nothing. <laughs> he said, I can get you work at Paramount. I said, no, thanks. I'm going to go direct. <laughs> uh, so that's a true story. So I have two questions about that, about the score and the, the music. So first of all, the score, you're saying Michael Smalls did that, and it does... It feels influenced in some in some way by Nilsson's early work. I don't know if you were if that was a conversation mm-hmm. you had with him at the time about Nilsson. No, no, no. Well, well, we listened to it, but you know, I don't remember any conversation. I mean, it's great. It's one of my favorite. He's one of my favorite artists, and he was certainly yeah, me uh, too. I love it. Yeah. Very zeitgeisty at the moment that you were making this, right? Um, but I'm also curious. So. Michael Small did the score. Did he also find the songs that are on the soundtrack that he that he didn't compose? There aren't too many. There aren't very many songs on the soundtrack. There's, a, I think, uh, uh, there aren't many. There's just uh, there aren't many songs. There's the one uh, I'm curious about when they when they leave the toll booth. Oh yeah, no, that's a Chaik- that's Chaik- Oh no, that's I know. I think that's kind of a Jackie DeShannon song. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That Michael found. Um, and I'm curious, that toll booth scene, is that just a stolen shot? Are you just like, that's not, there's no permits. You're just, they're just driving in a car oh, and you're in another car in front of them and stealing that shot. Oh, absolutely. Stealing the shot. Listen, you know, in that sequence, they get stopped on a, in a, uh, in a traffic jam on the Long Island Expressway and talk about the tyranny of beauty and ugly girls and pretty girls. I don't know if you yeah. remember that scene but there they are in the middle of the long island expressway having this conversation at the end of which i zoom out and we see that you know it's a two mile long uh traffic jam well when we came to shoot that scene the first time they got too close to the bridge we were on the over a bridge that was going over the expressway john Allison was working the camera and he had to zoom back but they were too close so when he zoomed back we didn't see the two miles of traffic backup you see we had our cars parallel to barry on either side of them so when they stopped they held up all the traffic on the long island expressway heading towards kennedy airport by the way anyway so we had to have them go around again come a second time this time they were too far back so when we zoomed in they were not close enough and then we did it a third time and the third time they stopped at the right place, we were able to get a shot. But by this time, people were going insane. Who traffic, you know, was stopped. And they had to get to the airport, and people were starting to drive along the Meridian, and oh, it got crazy. But we got the shot, and then we left before the cops got there. Uh, anyway, it was definitely a gorilla shoot. There was one credit on out of it that I had. I was curious about. Uh, there is uh, a. A credit to Carl Lerner. What was his role on Out of It? Creative consultant. And Carl Lerner was, you know, an Academy Award winning editor. He did 12 Angry Men. 
and a bunch of others. He was a friend of Eddie Orshan, who was my editor, a young guy who hadn't done much. And so at the end of each week of editing, Carl Lerner would come in and tighten up our dialogue scenes by overlapping, pulling them. I mean, I learned so much about how to cut a uh, dialogue scene from Carl Lerner. I mean, it changed, just snapped up the whole movie tremendously. And it's pretty amazing because at that time, none of us knew anything about that kind of you know, yeah, I mean, standard kind of Hollywood editing. But we didn't know about these overlap things. And, uh, I mean, Brian De Palma's first movies had not, they were just butt-to-butt dialogue. <laughs> it took some years to figure this out. But anyway, that was what Carl Lerner did. He really helped us on the dialogue scenes. Okay, so then, uh, continuing, there's a, and there are so many, there's so much resonance with The Graduate. It must be so frustrating to watch. Like I watched that, the the Romeo and Juliet scene with the melting bond bonds yeah. and the audio trickery. Right. And I feel like right. this is, it's using the same kind of sort of European editing style that then The Graduate right. does a year later in color with right. Dustin Hoffman and all that. But right, it, right. it just it feels like these are both coming from the same place. Can you talk a little bit about yeah, it? Yeah, it's a good scene. Well, yeah, no, it was conceived that way. It was based on a the, on a real event. Um, but yeah, the whole idea of using sound subjectively and um, uh, and using the editorial process to intensify the moment was, uh, you know. It, that's how it was written, um, and uh, it worked. It worked very well. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to. Th- you know, I'm going back uh, 65 years here. This isn't particularly easy. I understand. I'm trying to remember. I think Ed Pressman is just sitting in the next row in the back behind them with his mother. <laughs> huh. So anyway, what did you want? What did you want to know about that? Scene? Well, just I, no, that's it. Just, I just, I, oh well, yeah. No, I mean, Lin, Lindsay Anderson loved the movie and loved that scene, and I showed it to him at Twickenham in England when I was shooting the Revolutionary, and there were 158 prints of out of it that uh, United Artists still hadn't released. And when Lindsay saw the movie, he he asked if he could see it. And I showed it to him. He said he loved the movie, but he suggests I take out two scenes. One at the end of so-called first act, where I explain what is going to happen a little bit. And one at the end of the second act, where I explain a little bit. And he said, take out those two scenes. You don't tell the audience what you're going to do. Let them discover it. You're taking away all the dramatic tension. And when I pulled out those two scenes, the whole film worked I mean, it really made the film work from beginning to end. And I called David Pickard, United Artists, and I said, "Here, there are two cuts you have to make, and uh, I don't care if you use a hot spicer, you're going to change 158 prints. And they did it. They changed it. So, yeah, the movie was quite well liked by most directors. Uh, it just got held up for three years. Yeah, no, the timing, you know, this is, well, this is, uh, this is what we're getting into in this podcast is the, 
the weird synchronicities that work for you and that worked again you. Oh yeah, look, it was supposed to win the golden the uh, the golden bear at uh, the Berlin Film Festival, which they let me take it to. And two days before the awards, the radicals in Germany closed down the festival, <laughs> so there were no no awards given that year. George Stevens, the great American director, was going to give it the. He was chairman of the jury, and he loved the movie. So the revolution you were fighting for kept your film from winning the award you deserved. That's <laughs> that's 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 worthy of a film in and of itself. <laughs> uh, right, and Brian De Palma was there. We went together. He had Dionysus. In 69, his movie was in the festival, too. Anyway, I remember those days. So another film that I think of when I watch this, and I'm sure, like, I don't know where it fits in, I don't, or if it fits in at all, maybe it's just in my brain, but we have the scene with Barry Gordon and his tidy whities looking in the mirror, and all these scenes with him in his sunglasses, these, these black sunglasses, also worn by uh, Hoffman and The Graduate, and I can't help but think of Tom Cruise in Risky Business. There's a perfect Tom Cruise in Risky Business. It's funny. I was thinking about Tom Cruise this morning. You know, actually, I was thinking of, of him in Born on the Fourth of July, but also in Risky Business. Tom Cruise had a lot going for him back then. I have to say, he because he had a kind of sexiness that was good, but he was a, he was a very nice actor. Uh, and in some sense, that would have been more more to my liking for this character. It's kind of he is kind of the perfect like I feel like John Voight as that character. I don't know if I would have related to the film so much if John Voight played the lead and out of it. But the idea of a Tom Cruise type, which by the way, that character in Risky Business, Joel Goodson from the suburbs of Chicago is definitely coded as Jewish, although Tom Cruise isn't. And he does have this, like, he's sexy, but he's also kind of a, a nerdy, you know, milk toast right. boy in that film. And Right, right. Yeah, there's a, the themes that are playing through that and throughout of it. I, I'm glad that resonated with you. Oh, very much. Very much. Yeah. No, I think that's a good association. I was thinking that in some ways, you know, when Brian De Palma did that film with Cruz, it was, for my money, his best action movie. De Palma did Mission Impossible. Yeah, that's what it was. But it, you should see it. It's not like any other Mission Impossible you'll ever see. It was kind of brilliant. And I thought Tom Cruise was very good in it under De Palma's director, although I understand he hated the film. I thought it was kind of brilliant. The other thing that sort of struck me about the Barry Gordon character, again, thinking of modern cultural references, is he kind of has a proto um, Larry David, George Costanza thing. Yeah. Like the overthinking, yeah. the way he plays off these women, the way, like the scene, the scene where he's like, I could say anything to you. Right. Like he makes her cry. Right. Right. I love you. And then like that is such a Larry David right. as a kid kind of moment. Right. Like I'm just trying to get at what's true, but he's totally hurting her feelings. He right. completely is misreading right. the moment. Right. Um, are you a fan of Seinfeld and Larry David? Uh, that makes, well, to some extent, yes. I mean, 
Larry David, no, I'm not a fan of his. I bumped into him a few times. Larry David to me is just too neurotic, and uh, I'm not that interested in neurotics. Um, but he's very smart and he can be funny, you know. And he's much bolder, and he and Seinfeld, you know, they're fresher. Most people are just so boring. He's not boring. So, yeah. Yes, yeah. if you're going to be neurotic, at least don't be boring. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's the same. Look, I think a lot of great American, really great American directors, you know, including Scorsese and and uh, a lot of the Italian Americans, uh, you know, for me, they're not as good as Fellini or uh, Kurosawa or... There are certain people who are masters of, who are in life are masters, nothing to do with movies, who also make movies, right? But uh, in America, we have masterful movie makers. <laughs> they're, they're masters of, their, their reality is movies. I mean, you know, uh, I don't feel that they have very much to teach anybody, except people who would like to go into the movies and be successful. I mean, it, for for me, for me, you know, the Pauline Kael got very much behind all of them, all this sort of sadism and violence and, you know, mafioso. I mean, for the last 30 or 40 years, our, you know, we've had glorified killers as our heroes in movies. And that's what we're getting. We have a military that kills. We have presidents that, you know, think they're mob bosses. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's a symptomatic of a pretty delusional society. And uh, I'm not that fascinated by their fascinations. Well, clearly, I mean, this this is uh, we're talking about a film, this film out of it that if you really start to unpack it, you can see. I mean, it's a personal film, even though you feel like it, the casting wasn't exactly right on. You know, you're writing about this guy who wants to be a director who has a film called The Man Who Killed Men. <laughs> right. It like it's so it's such a personal story. Right. And you can feel like this kid is going like this could kid could grow up to be Paul Williams, or he could grow up to be Abby Hoffman, or he could grow up <laughs> to be, you know, uh I guess Larry David, he could like there's a the trajectory of this kid who's very smart, full of conscience, but kind of also weirdly sociopathic uh, is just he's just it's just a rich character. And you can see that this the the potential for this kid is immense, but it could go it could go either way. Mm. I, I wanted to uh, talk about there's some there's some aspects of the culture in this film. There's the paddling scene, which is uh, it's I guess it's kind of played for laughs, but it's also really horrifying. Did, was that a true thing? Did you experience paddling in high school? I certainly did. In fact, our high school, I mean, I was paddled all the time because I had a big mouth. Uh and the coaches, I mean, they definitely were a bunch of sadistic uh, guys. And I understand three or four years later after I graduated, they were all, and it became known that they were paddling these kids. They all got thrown out. Uh, you know, they were really a sadistic bunch. 
Charlie Noble, and I just one of the guy. I still remember he was head of the department, uh, athletic department. And he was the one of the weirdest sadists of all. So yeah, I mean, and even in, when you got into the varsity club, they took a baseball bat and sawed it down the middle. So it wasn't even a paddle ball paddle. It was a baseball bat cut down the middle that they whacked you with. And that lasted weeks, that welt. So yeah, in our school, was uh, we definitely had this corporal punishment. No, it was a public high school. You know, this was not a private Catholic school. Yeah, in that uh, in the scenes with the the football stuff, there was a what to me was a startling cinematic synchronicity when the coach is yelling at you about the scrimmage with Amityville, mm-hmm. and as we know, we dealt with last week uh, in the episode about Margot and the gang, your relationship with Margot Kidder, who of course starred in the Amityville horror. <laughs> which for most people who aren't from that region, if you hear Amityville, you think Amityville horror. Uh (laughs) And as you describe it, the horror is being on the football team that has to scrimmage against Amityville because you're getting beaten by these grown men with baseball bats. Um, Yeah, this is one of this is one of the my fetishes for film is the way that a reality that the filmmakers couldn't know right, creeps right. into a scene that then we look at later and are like, "Ooh, boy, this <laughs> this is a rich little moment that makes just opens up this horrific world." Yeah. Um, uh-huh. I don't know if you even have anything to say about it. I just wanted well, to share. Well, no, I that. definitely uh, Amityville was next town over, and uh, we they were our big nemesis. Yeah. So I mean, I, I wrestled against Amityville. I was on the wrestling team for a while. It was, they were, it was uh, right next door. And then, of course, the Amityville Horrors came out. And that was sort of fun. I just have two more things to ask you about, about this film. One is there's a, a lot of water stuff, swimming, stuff on the beach. There's the, you know, the, we haven't even talked about who's the actress who plays the, the blonde dream girl in it Leda Edmond Jr. Leda Edmond Jr. and did she go on to anything else? Uh, she became a stunt woman actually. Really? And, uh, yeah, she had a career as a stunt woman. She was the girl in the cage in the Hullabaloo show on TV. Oh wow. Well, quite a career. So the scenes with her like there's the scenes of her jumping into the water slow motion and i'm just curious if there is anything like if the swimming and the water is was intended as a metaphor for anything else or if it's just that that's where things happen well i gotta tell you there's there's so many ironies when when barry you know i lived in the water i was a water skier i could swim you know i was very that was one of my areas of you know where i excelled and, you know, we had to do the scene. Barry reveals to me just before we're going to do the scene, he can't swim. <laughs> I had all in mind this kind of genre noir movie where there was swimming in synchronicity through the water together, very romantic scene. Um, <laughs> and Barry tells me he's frightened to death. He's not going to jump in the water. So we had to put a net under the water, you know, like six feet by six feet or eight feet by eight feet, so that when he jumped in the water, he wouldn't drown. 
<laughs> and so anyway, we really had to reconceive that scene uh, from what I had in mind. Uh, but yeah, for me, sitting on the water, because in the water I had a boat, which meant I could get around. There weren't any parents around. There was no society. The thing about being at sea or being on the ocean, and still in, in my adult life, I love sailing and I love to be out on the ocean. It's like we're surrounded all the time by material, mechanical, industrial reality. And when you get far enough out in the water, that's all, it all goes away. It's the closest you can get to a primal condition, the way it was before industrialization interrupted the proper functioning of the soul. It's like, uh, you know, you look at a baby's face and the whole world disappears, right? And that's a little bit what uh, going on the ocean is like and being in the water. It's a return to... Uh, uh, a kind of pre-industrial purity. We need to correct something here. I'm looking, when, when you look up Paul Williams out of it and do a search and you, it shows the cast, it lists Al Pacino and James Woods as being members of this cast. <laughs> Are they hidden somewhere in like somebody's locker <laughs> in this movie? <laughs> No. They're, they're not in the movie. Is that correct? Yeah, no. Just, Al Pacino was supposed to be, and up until two weeks before shooting, was supposed to be in the Revolutionary, playing Seymour Cassell's role. Um, so uh, that's as close as Pacino got to uh, this film. And uh, who else? And Jimmy Woods. James Woods? Yeah. he. The close, many years later, he and Sean Young got into it. He kind of ruined her career. Right. That's... A yeah. That's a different That's film. That's a different film. And then, and while, just so we make sure, then also Michael Gatso, who is who people will remember from The Godfather. Yeah. Was he in the movie, or is he also listed incorrectly? You know, I don't remember. I don't remember, because there was that scene. I mean, you know who was there on that scene on the steps where John Avildsen plays a hippie? There are some people, the cops there, uh, show up in a lot of Scorsese movies later. Uh, but I didn't think it was Michael. There's some other people in that scene who do show up in Scorsese movies later, but not, uh, not uh, him. Got it. Well, I, let's just, let's end talking about what I think is one of the, just a great line from the film. It's the one, it's the line that really stands out to me. I don't know what you want. You're not deep, you're just horny. <laughs> that is a good line, yeah. It, and that's and you wrote the you wrote the screenplay for this one, right? Right. And do you, yeah. did you feel did did the actors stay pretty close to what you wrote? Was there um, improvisation involved? Oh yeah. Oh no, there's no improvisation in that scene. That was every word was written. Well, you can tell because it's integrated with the, the lines from South Pacific. Uh, are woven into the lines of that scene. You know, when he says, who can explain it, you know? Who can tell you why? I mean, a fool would give you reasons. Well, a wise, wise, a wise man wouldn't try. He's actually doing the lines from South Pacific to the girl, and she's not realizing it. Oh. Well, see, I'm like the girl. I didn't realize it. <laughs> 
Yeah, he could have kissed you, that's for sure. <laughs> well, um, this is great. Thanks for talk for making time to talk about this film from 60 years ago with uh, me. Uh, <laughs> I right. hope that more people find it. Well, wait, let's just say that they're going to show it at the Roxy, right? In New York. And I hope sometime it comes out to L.A. So keep your eyes peeled for it. Absolutely. Also, you might want to read about this stuff in the in the book. Uh, Harvard, Hollywood, tit men and holy men. Well, there's a lot more there. <laughs> That's quite interesting. I highly recommend it. Hey, folks. Andras here. Thanks for following along with the podcast. I hope it's something you're enjoying, and maybe it's even inspiring you to check out some of Paul's films, and if you haven't already seen them, some of the films he's talking about. In our next episode, Paul talks about his relationship with Black Panther leader... Huey P. Newton sits alone in a big lounge chair facing us all. At the large window behind him, on a tripod, there's a telescope aimed across Lake Merritt into the courtroom of his ongoing trial. Huey says, why is the black foreman of this jury going to find me guilty of second-degree murder? I imagine I am the foreman of this jury. Meanwhile, none of the other lawyers respond to the question. Huey waits. I look at Lenny Wayneglass. I wait. He is silent. Not a word from the others. I say, because he thinks that if you get a hung jury, the foreman of the next jury will find you guilty of first-degree murder. He believes he's saving your life. Huey stares at me. If you have questions for Paul or me, please send them to contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com and we'll do our best to answer them in subsequent episodes. The link to purchase Paul's book, Harvard, Hollywood, Hitmen, and Holy Men, is in the show notes. And you can still find our posts on Instagram at the World is Wrong Podcast and on Twitter at World is Wrong Pod. Until next time, I'm your host, Andras Jones, reminding you that wherever you are, the world is wrong. And it's probably wrong about you. Here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tig Notaro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Show.